Tutti agli animali Apriremo quelle gabbie Vili ecocriminali Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Freedom of the Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast. And thanks to Sally from Out of the Pan talking all uh, all things pansexual issues. Uh, and if you want to catch Sally's show again, um, tune in next Sunday at 12pm. And Sally always does a great show. Um, I'm really excited about today's show because we get to chat to Professor Hank Rothgerber from Ballamine University in Kentucky, USA. And Hank's research, I think, is really interesting and important to a lot of you out there who are listening, animal people who are interested in um, how, we, how we approach behaviour change in relation to meat eating. There's Hank's research is focused on human-animal interactions in the context of food choices. And that includes um, researching the meat paradox. So how do people resolve the meat paradox? And that is, you know, when someone says, I love animals, but I also eat them, and the psychology of vegetarianism. Now, I recently came across uh, one of Hank's papers called Meat-Related Cognitive Dissonance, a conceptual framework for understanding how meat eaters reduce negative arousal from animals, from eating animals. And I thought it was just a fantastic summary and um, of, of all of this research and strategies that people use to justify the way their behaviours around eating animals, um, even though they also believe that they, uh, they, they love them. And it's probably one of the best things I've read for animal advocacy from the scientific literature in a long time. And I think it would be really valuable for lots of you to sort of dig into and have a look at and learn from uh, and, and figure out how to, how, to, how to approach this. And Hank's here to give us some insight into that. And just before, so thank, thanks for joining us today, Hank. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's great to be here. And, um, and just really quickly, before we get into the framework, um, so why did you get into this area of research? Why, why uh, spend your, your time and your life's work sort of working on meat-related cognitive assistance? Yeah, so um, it, really a couple of forces kind of came together. Uh, I finished my uh, graduate training in about, in about the year 2000. Um, my research area was intergroup relations, stereotyping, very theoretical, um, very uh, difficult to collect data at being at a small teaching university primarily. Um, and I found just my contribution existentially, I was kind of having some distress because it seemed so well researched and, and I was questioning how much I was really adding. Around that same time, I um, gave up eating meat. And, uh, you know, over about a decade or so, I just started, I had more and more experiences with meat eaters and with thinking about it became more and more important, more and more central to my identity. And I actually started um, wondering, why don't I do research in this area? There's a lot of social psychological questions. I had read uh, several of Carol Adams' books about the, the pornography of meat and, and I thought to myself, you know, she's raising all these really interesting um, ideas and concepts. There's no data, the, you know, the way that social psychologists, social science collect data, but I could do that. I could do this. And so 
Um, my first study was published in 2013, um, you know, took a couple years, but it was basically looking, kind of testing her ideas on masculinity and its relationship to justifying eating meat. And from there on, the field has just grown. And I just, I feel really fortunate to have kind of been on the first wave of it. It's been really remarkable to see how many, um, I remember sending an email to Matt Ruby, Matthew Ruby, who's in Australia, who's also been doing this work for a while. And at the time we were kind of asking, do you know anyone else that's doing this? Do you know anyone else that's doing this? And we would generate just a couple names. And now, I mean, that's Matthew and I are are editing a special issue of the uh, journal Appetite, which is kind of the leading social science outlet for um, studies on meat eating and vegetarianism. And, you know, I expect we'll have several, I hope anyway, we'll have at least several dozen articles submitted in the the short timeframe. There's just so many people, um, you know, doing this and appetite, this is one of the most heavily researched topics now. So it's been really cool to see in such a, you know, in a short amount of time, really how much interest, how this, this is almost like a new field that's really been carved out. It's been great. Yeah. Awesome. Do you want to, do you want to give an explanation of what meat related cognitive dissonance sort of means or is, and then we'll, I'd love, I'd love to pick apart that framework a little bit more. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, cognitive dissonance is, I mean, there's, there's a number of different, the part of this, the thing is I hate to even make it so complicated, but there, it's been very well researched and there's so much controversy over the years, over the decades of what exactly causes cognitive dissonance. And, but generally, and initially the easiest way to understand it is just that a person, they have two um, inconsistent, um, cognitive states. So it could be that you typically it's a behavior you've engaged in a behavior that, uh, is in contradiction to a value an attitude, a belief that you also hold. So in the simplest form, in this case, you could say that meat related cognitive dissonance occurs when a person realizes they have some, um, acknowledgement or recognition, um, that basically their behavior is a meat eater uh, violate some other attitude or belief or value that they hold. So uh, if they recognize that they're a meat eater and they realize that they uh, recognize that they love animals, they see those two things in contradiction to each other. And the resulting state of dissonance is this unpleasant negative arousal. Like it doesn't feel good. It makes us feel tense. It makes us feel stressed. It makes us feel anxious. So, you know, in dissonance theory, we're, we're motivated to get rid of the dissonance. Right. And so that's where a lot of the a lot of the paper focuses on on how do we get rid of that this particular kind of dissonance, right? How is it activated, but then also how do we get rid of it? And there's you know, there's a number over a dozen strategies at least, I think. Maybe other people have more too, but there's over a dozen strategies, different ways of you know, that meat eaters can go about. The the basic point is how to the, the basic way to think of it is how can they still feel good? Mm. Right? How can they still feel like good people? and doing something that's, that's problematic, yeah, right? It could change. be problematic because yeah. they love animals and they recognize the harm. It could be problematic because they're environmentalists and they recognize the environmental harm. It could be problematic because they're concerned about their health or the health of others. Um, and they recognize the threat that, that uh, meat eating poses to, to health of some sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose, so what you've done in this, in this particular paper is you've looked at all of the research that's come out 
around um, around consumption of animals, flesh, and um, and cognitive dissonance, and you've brought that together. Is there what was the motivation for sort of getting all of that um, work and putting it within one framework? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess um, I. To me, uh, the biggest, it, it helped address the biggest question that I that kept plaguing me. I mean, I'd been, I'd been sort of hitting around the edges of it. And I think some other people had too, but it was the primary question is just, okay. I mean, ultimately I want my research to help end meat eating as a thing. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm, we've seen more and more now, there's more and more information about the harmful effects of eating meat. Uh, on so many different levels, the information is out there, right? I mean, reports keep coming out, big commissions by, you know, disinterested parties, by objective parties, you know, right? Um, but yet, it's it doesn't seem like it's really affecting behavior in a clear way. Uh, people are, like in the United States, for instance, um, meat eating has been at record levels the last few years per capita even, so like per person. I'm not sure. But I mean, in general, of course, it's, it's, you know, increasing in like developing parts of the world as well. I'm not sure about Australia, but in Europe, it's, it, it doesn't really show signs of, of dissipating too much. And so the, the fundamental, just whenever I, I read studies, read articles, the, the question I keep returning to is just how do people do this? Like, how do people in this age, how do they still eat meat and what stories do they tell themselves? These are people that think of themselves as moral. These are people that think of themselves as decent. These are people that often think about themselves as doing good things. How does it work in this case, right? I mean, that's the fundamental question. So it's basically, how are they able to psychologically convince themselves that what they're doing is okay? Yeah. And, um, and Yeah. And, and especially as, as you as you point out, because there are so many more triggers now around meat-related cognitive mm -hmm. dissonance that, that are going to be triggering it with all of that information, they're sort of bombarded with it um, that they need to be going through this process of um, of sort of managing that cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. and getting rid of it a lot more often. And, and perhaps that's one of the reasons there's so much vitriol against vegans is because they're always sort of experiencing this cognitive dissonance and it's easy attack. And so once, once meat-related cognitive dissonance is triggered, you have um, the next stage, which is uh, blocking the triggers of meat-related right. dissonance. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's basically um, some of the strategies... I guess your, your listeners are probably uh, from personal experience had in, you know, plenty of encounters, their own encounters with meat eaters. And they probably have some sense of some of the strategies from excuses or rationalizations or remarks or comments or judgments that meat eaters have made. So some of these, some of these ways that um, these meat related cognitive dissonance strategies, some of them are, are articulated and then some of them are not, some of them are like out kind of outside of explanation so in, in terms of some of those that are outside explanation to begin with, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole system of avoidance where we just, you know, one of the main strategies that we deal with that meat eaters deal, you know, they go about dealing with this is just to not think about it. Just, just to try to block it out. It's not part of conversation. Uh, it's, it's taboo to bring up factory farming. Uh, people don't want to think about it. Um, there's cultural systems that enable that. 
uh, slaughterhouses are physically distant. You know, we don't see them. We don't have to, you know, smell what happens, hear them, right? They're blocked from our senses. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of laws here. We have like ag gag laws where you can't photo what, you know, video record what happens in slaughterhouses. So they're really protected. Um, and people just don't, so, so primarily people just don't know that much. Uh, I think a lot of times, um, you know, as a researcher in this area, I, I, I have to remind myself of that. Like the average person just doesn't, I assume that they know everything that happens in factory farming. And it's quite shocking how ignorant people are really mm. like they, they, and, and, and that leads into the next strategy, which is uh, it's a willful ignorance, right? They don't want, it's not just that they don't know, it's that they don't want to know. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, willful ignorance, generally the way I think about it is you, you have some suspicion that something is true, but you're, but you're not quite to the point where it's a, it's a confirmed belief, but most importantly, you don't want to know. And I think a lot of us have encountered that before, where if you start telling someone something, they're like, ah, let me stop you right here. I, I don't want to know. Mm. Right. I don't want to hear anything else about that. And sometimes they might even explicitly say, because if you do tell me, it's going to make it harder for me to keep doing this. And I want to keep doing this. Right. I want to keep eating meat. So if you keep talking about this, I'm going to have a really hard time with this. Um, I'm sure, and so I'm they, sure you know, lots of us have come across that one. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And so it works, you know, avoid you avoid information, even if that information you, you could find anyone could find out all this information. Right. But the average meat eater doesn't actively seek it out. And then when confronted with it, tries to close it down. Mm. Um, so we're, we're basically in a state where we, where we don't know that much about it. Kids, little kids, for instance, and their socialization, uh, they think that uh, farm-raised animals are very happy and it's kind of this idyllic place. They think they're happy. I think there's data that show they even think they're happier than pets, you know, mm. that they're better treated than pets. So Old McDonald. You know, yeah, right. It reaches down to, to this, this, you know, romantic BS uh, socialization of our children, right? And, um, you know, that's actually a whole nother, another thing is how does this work with kids? I actually have, have done a little bit of work on that and how this all, what happens. I'm fascinated with how this, the developmental aspects of this, and because at some point kids are socialized to love animals most of them eat meat at an early age without understanding where it comes from. What happens when those two things collide? You know, what happens when that mm. collides, when they get that awareness of where meat comes from and they link it to the animal? How do they handle that, right? How do they deal with that kind of stress? And to me, that's a very fascinating question developmentally. Yeah, and Vaishnavi, the, so yeah, you have a question. Yes, uh, so I wanted to ask, like, do you think that the government is uh, helping people to increase their meat intake? So you just mentioned that there are laws that people can't film uh, slaughterhouses. Uh, They're physically so distant that people uh, on a usual day wouldn't end up at a slaughterhouse. Do you think this is uh, another reason why meat eating is increasing in various countries? Yeah, I think uh, certainly the government is complicit in the whole thing. Um, I can't help but think about COVID-19 and I don't, I promise I won't get too sidetracked with that, but I don't know about in Australia, but even with uh, in recent uh, the last few weeks, there's been there's starting to be a little bit of a panic that there might be a meat shortage here because the meat packing plants, people haven't been able to to work because they they can't socially distance. And a lot of the workers are getting sick and it's it's causing this sort of this underlying panic. Like people feel like their right to meat is, is being threatened, like a right to meat almost yeah. is being threatened. 
but yeah, um, the meat industry is heavily subsidized here in the States. Um, I mean, I would suspect it, it's that way in a lot of other countries too, but I don't know as, yep. as much, certainly don't know about as much Australia, but that's one reason why um, basically fast food here, uh, McDonald's and so on is per calorie is the cheapest food you can get um, because the, the price has been altered. It's artificial. So um, you know, the, the, the feed for cows, for instance, the price is artificially lowered through government subsidies. So in the end, the consumer pays less money for that than they really should. And things that are healthy for you aren't subsidized and like, you know, fresh organic fruits and vegetables and you pay much more for them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, the government, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence that, that the government uh, has a role in this and that the government creates cheap meat. Um, if you just look at, at laws, for instance, I mean, we, we have animal cruelty laws here in the States, but those laws, so for instance, if my neighbor uh, went out and um, I don't want to turn all your audience members off, Adam, but if my neighbor went out and abused, let's say tortured their animal next mm. door, I mean, they, they could be held you know, res- criminally responsible for that. But none of those laws, uh, you know, apply to factory farmed animals. So you have what people, what my neighbors would think was this horribly offensive behavior committed to one animal, and yet they're all turning a blinded eye when it involves millions and millions of animals, right? So this clearly the government, you know, in terms of laws, to the extent laws obviously reflect the government's will, right? I mean, the government uh, is a facilitator of this. Um, They encourage it. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, psycho- I'm a psychologist, social psychologist, and we usually think about, we approach things from an individual perspective and our solutions are mostly geared toward the individual level, but there's a whole level of solution here that, uh, where it does have to, uh, should, um, to reach out at the governmental level, you know, yeah. and look at laws and look at lobbying and look at regulations, um, because they do play a big part in, in, in affecting people's perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one, one thing I really like about about your framework, the, the work that you've brought together is that it sort of has some um, answers to uh, the the behaviours that we see. So you mentioned this difference that people have, um, that they perceive, say, the dog differently to the pig at the slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and, um, and accept different treatments of those, those animals. And, you know, we, we call that speciesism. Um, and within later on in your framework that there's a there's a, a, a dissonance reducing mechanism called dichotomization that deals with mm-hmm. that so you, you've really neatly captured all of those things one one question I have um, just before we uh, maybe go to a break is you you mentioned the that children at an early age are sort of socialized or, or um, develop a love for animals i feel like one of the one of the best ways to block meat related cognitive dissonance would just be to not care about animals in the first place why why doesn't society promote um uncaring for animals from an early age so if, if we don't care about animals we wouldn't we wouldn't um have this issue Do that's an interesting that? question yeah um well, I think part of it, um, I don't think that it's our love for animals isn't merely just socialized. Mm. Uh, I think that might be, that's probably part of the answer to the question. I mean, I think there's, you can argue there's natural bonds, um, 
perhaps based, you know, evolutionary bonds. Uh, we've depended on animals. Uh, we've developed relationships th throughout with animals throughout history. So I don't actually, I mean, I do think that, that we are so their socialization makes that even stronger, you know, like, um, kids books, you know, use animal characters, cartoons and so on stuffed animals and toys and everything else. I think that, that, uh, you know, strengthens the relationship, but I don't think, I still think we would love animals or we'd still feel a bond with them, even if we didn't socialize in that way. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, I, yeah, I think you, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and we'll go for, we'll go to a break now. And um, Hank's suggested a couple of songs, some good ones actually. <laughs> and so our first, our first song is uh, by The Cure called Just Like Heaven. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to Freedom Species on 3CR 855 AM and via podcast. We've been speaking to Hank Rothgerber uh, from the Bellarmine University in Kentucky and Frank's research um, that's focused on meat-related cognitive dissonance. We've just been speaking about the framework that uh, Frank has pulled together in a recent paper where we've, and we've discussed triggers for meat-related cognitive dissonance and how we block these triggers um, for meat-related cognitive dissonance. I was, and Hank, I'm hoping that we can that we can continue down that path. What happened? So we there's, there was there was a few. Um, different triggers that we've already mentioned. So avoidance, willful ignorance. There's also others like disasso sure. uh, disassociation, perceived behavioral change and do-gooder derogation. But to, to move to the next part of the framework, what happens if, um, if we're successful in blocking meat-related cognitive dissonance? Yeah, so, um, I mean, basically the idea is um, 
we have, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly exposed, potentially threatened by uh, me related dissonance. I mean, it could be information. It could come from, uh, uh, you know, exposure to a meat eater. Uh, I'm mean, sorry, to a vegetarian. Um, and so we uh, end up, we end up feeling, you know, it's, it's just inevitable that meat eaters are going to experience negative emotions. Um, you know, they, they can try to avoid thinking about it. They can try to remain willfully ignorant. They can convince themselves that they eat less meat than they really do, or that the meat they eat is, uh, you know, humanely produced. Um, but inevitably there's sort of this other approach that kicks in, um, where you, you could think of it generally as more direct justifications, um, less kind of hiding behind it. Uh, and, and so a major way that meat eaters go about feeling better about themselves is, um, uh, you could call it denial of animal mind, mm -hmm. basically where, um, meat eaters will denigrate either the emotional capacity of animals. They're not as smart as we are. They, you know, or the sensory, uh, characteristics, like they don't feel pain the same way we do. So basically this is a big one. And there's been a lot of studies that have supported this idea. Yeah, even having people in a lab, for instance, eating an animal compared to a group, not eating the animal, those that eat the animal will rate the animals, you know, sensory and intellectual qualities lower than those that weren't eating it. Even though in fact, I mean, outside the lab, they all eat it, but just in that moment, when, when you're actually made to eat it, it causes you to, to write, to have to justify that and why you're doing it. And so probably at some unconscious level, maybe even mediators will um, just to make themselves feel better, will put down, they'll denigrate the, you know, the animal that they're eating. So it doesn't seem as much like uh, a crime in a sense. Mm. It's not as you're, you're kind of hiding the injury that you're doing. And I think that's, that's a major device. We also have these other uh, broader justifications um, that people will rely on to defend meat eating. So these are a lot of the ones we, that, that I mentioned earlier are kind of where you hide behind it, where you try to, you try to trick other people. I don't really eat that much meat or I don't want to think mm -hmm. about it, or I don't want to, you know, we dissociate the meat from the animal. So we call it, uh, you know, uh, bacon instead of pig. Right. So you can convince, you're kind of lying to yourself and lying to others, but some of these other strategies are more just, you know, you're owning it. And um, other ones, there's there's this this idea of the four ends of of um, meat justification that that meat is natural, normal, nice, and necessary. Yeah. And so the normal part is we convince ourselves that this is just what people do, right? This is just the way things are. This is the way things are it's just they're supposed to be. Um, everyone else does it, and I think there's there's sort of a uh, a temptation to when enough other people do something it sort of, it feel, it makes us feel like it's okay. And it makes us uh, at a deep level. Um, the, uh, my own understanding of this, this strategy has kind of even changed. The, the longer I think about it, the more powerful I think it is. Um, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty about morality and what really is moral and what really isn't. And I think just hiding in the crowd and assuming that the crowd has a certain wisdom is a pretty powerful strategy. Um, so that's a big one. Um, meat is natural. Um, you know, people think it's the way we've evolved. Uh, there's that aspect of it. Some people tie it to religion. God intended for us to eat animals. He made animals to serve our needs. Um, the meat is necessary. 
you know, common uh, myths about protein and you can only get enough protein from eating animal flesh, things we know are not true, but they're so widespreadly held. Mm. Um, and so a lot of people think that, uh, you know, you can't be healthy. It's ironic because I think, in fact, the, probably the evidence suggests the exact opposite, that actually meat diets are, are more problematic. But a lot of meat eaters are going around thinking that uh, it's the vegetarians and vegans that are, that are, you know, that have a problem in their diet. Um, and then the meat is the sorry, the meat is nice. That just, that, that gets at something that I think is underrated in the literature, but that is just the idea that, uh, that people love the taste of it. They love the mm. taste of it too much to give it up. And you see and this, I you see that, like this, this one comes through so strongly when people are like, mm, bacon, you know, they, they yeah. just always come back with that. Oh yeah, but it's so tasty. Yeah. I'd never give up bacon. It's, it's yeah. sort of yeah, going to yeah. And there's a gender aspect to these. And in, in general, um, men are more likely to adopt the kind of um, unapologetic strategies. The, you know, animals aren't as good as us. We can do what we're entitled to do, whatever we want to. They're here to serve our needs. I like the taste too much. Um, women are more likely to, to engage in the, uh, the apologetic ones like avoidance and dissociation. I don't want to think about it too much and underreport how much meat they eat. Men don't, don't typically underreport how much they eat, but women do. So, yeah. Um, I think the taste though is a, the hedonic part is a big one. It seems, um, it seems this might be a little bit in the, in the research weeds, but I think, uh, it's been kind of ignored because it doesn't sound that complicated, it sounds pretty just, you know, straightforward and simple, but I, in terms of how important it, how important all these strategies are though, I'd probably put that one up there as a very, very big one. Like I think that's an immediate barrier for, um, for a lot of people. They just can't fathom anything else because they, they love the taste so much and they just don't want to, they know that's it. They're not going to, they're not going to entertain any of these other notions. And I think uh, basically the more you love the taste, the more dissonance you should really feel from all this. Um, but I, I think, I think that sets in motion a lot of other needs to justify things. If you love the taste that much, then you're going to feel compelled to devalue animals, yep. for instance. Um, yeah. So these things aren't just one strategies. or yeah. these things aren't just, people aren't just using one of these strategies. They actually often, um, use many strategies at the same time yeah. to reduce dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just a few more, just to run down the list. Um, one of them, I have a current project that, so I'll mention that one, this idea of moral outrage. I, I think this is a, an, an interesting idea that, um, uh, some researchers have come up with this idea that moral outrage, we usually think of it when we're, we're, we're angry by some sort of uh, moral violation of someone else. We think of it mostly as being a pro-social thing. It's designed to fix the problem and to create some social justice. But there's actually evidence that there's also this kind of selfish component to it, that basically the expression of moral outrage lets us, it restores our own moral identity and our own moral self-worth. And by blaming, you know, getting angry at some third-party transgressor, we're actually kind of washing away our own sins. And so I think you see this with meat eaters too. Um, We've got, an ex we've got a couple of experiments, for example, um, where if you, if you remind someone that they eat meat or you threaten that, then they will, uh, you, you, you sort of tell them that meat is under attack and tell them about the environmental harm of eating meat. Mm. Um, in that situation, they will then express more moral outrage. Um, in this case, it's SeaWorld, the sea park, where they, for, for the uh, mistreatment of dolphins that they have. 
they'll have more moral outrage there than someone who wasn't reminded that they eat meat. And so the idea is that, that, that when they're experiencing the threat from eating meat, they want to feel better about themselves. And so one way they do that is by getting angry at all these other ways in which animals are mistreated. And that anger toward the, toward, you know, animal mistreatment on other domains is really uh, a symptom of eating meat, right? And that need to feel good about it. So you probably, and this explains, I think a lot of the, oh, um, just inconsistency that I bet a lot of your audience and you probably experience where meat eaters will get so angry at the way, uh, I think it was Cecil, for instance, Cecil the lion, if you remember that in, in uh, Africa, the, the American dentist who killed the, the lion like in the safari hunt and people get so outraged at how a, a particular animal is mistreated. And of course, it's no one's condoning that. But the, the, the dilemma or the question is always just like, how do you how do you personally, you know, eat hundreds of animals in your own, you know, in your own lifetime, thousands of animals in your own lifetime, and you're, yet, yet you're upset about this one animal. And I, yep. The idea of moral outrage helps explain that. Yeah. That, that in fact, they're, the reason why they're getting so angry at those, they're, they're actually the two things are related. And the reason why they're getting so angry at those individual animal abuses is because of all the abuse that they are inflicting on animals through their diet. Yeah, right. that's a that's a fascinating one, and, uh, and so <laughs> they're sort of hitching their wagon to uh, this exa- these these examples of animal abuse to sort of bolster up that idea that I love animals. You know, this is the proof. Look at yeah. me, I love animals. Um, and so, yeah. and when you when you spoke about when you spoke about that, it sort of brought up there's a there's a tension in. Um, in the advocacy world in Australia, particularly in environmental advocacy and social social activism um, in Australia and Melbourne, and I imagine it is in, in America as well. Um, and it's where, say, environmental movement, uh, there's a strong push from, from certain people within the environmental movement to, um, to reduce meat consumption in those spaces. But then, the, then certain people within those movements sort of get moral outrage for for say indigenous people who who they argue should be have access to traditional foods and things like that and so serve meat despite them not being um being part of that traditional culture or, or community and i wonder if that's sort of like another form of moral outrage where you're using moral outrage for another group to mm-hmm. um bolster up your own your own um participation in so if it's okay for them to do it, then it's okay yeah. for me to do it. I'm not sure if it fits in moral outrage or somewhere else. It's just a really prickly problem that we've been trying to deal with and tackle in the environmental movement. Maybe. Yeah, like a vicarious sort of effect almost. Like you're, 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 um, it, it seems inauthentic though, right? Like it seems disingenuous, but you're, you're trying to, uh, it's like a fake empathy almost or something, right? Yeah you're, 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 you're pretending to put yourself in their shoes and, and how could you do this, but it's for some other selfish purpose on your part. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a sort of, uh, it all fits under the umbrella of motive. I mean, the whole general topic is, as I get into this more and more, I mean, I'm still very in, primarily interested in mediating, but I, I started to realize how it's really just a, a specific case of motivated reasoning. Uh, in, in, in psychology, we have this thing called you know, motivated reasoning is a big area. Mm. Uh, and you see it in politics too, political motivated reasoning. But, but that's what this is really in a, just a big picture is an example of. It's the idea that, that people don't approach information rationally, 
um, that uh, they selectively process information to suit their own needs and to reach the conclusions that they want to reach. Mm. And that's what's happening here. I mean, generally people uh, are eating meat, they want to eat meat. And so every, they're, they're just essentially twisting everything else around so that they can feel okay about it. You know, the strategies are different. They operate at different times. Some might prefer one over the other, but that's what they all have in common. They're, they're all examples of people not uh, really behaving uh, objectively or approaching information rationally, but trying to twist it and distort it to their ends. And it's, it, it, I think it speaks to, you know, in putting together this framework, ultimately my, my goal, um, not in, in addition to just kind of outlying like the theoretical processes, but is to try to be pragmatic too. And I've always, I've kind of viewed it like if you want to get people to reduce their meat consumption, you have to first understand like what the barriers are mm. and you have to understand what the reasons are some of them that they will state and others that they won't state. But I see these basically these, you know, dozen plus dissonance strategies. These are like the barriers, yep. right? These are, these are the impediments to people changing. This is what they're, this is what they're going to fall back on. This is what, you know, whenever there's more efforts to persuade them, this is what's going to creep up. This is how they're going to respond. We know that in advance. So maybe knowing that in advance, we can anticipate that and we can try to design interventions to tackle, you know, to tackle these strategies. Uh, having said that, it's it's very difficult. Um, it's very, I mean, it's, uh, and, and the other, the part that in terms of getting people to change their behaviors, it also suggests um, kind of the framework I put together. It's not a one size fits all. Some people are going to respond differently uh, to different types of messages and to different types of arguments. Um, just to take gender as an example, the ma I mean, males and females really do approach meat eating very differently and uh, I, I think women can are much more likely you can kind of bully them um, into into giving up meat more easily than you can men um, based on, you know, women are more attached to animals and just have very different attitudes toward animals than, than men do. And they're uh, they really um, are much more ambivalent about eating meat than men are. Um, and so I think information is more likely to work with women, whereas men in some cases it could really even just backfire. Uh, I've got some, an experiment that I collected of just over a few months ago, well, a little more than a few months ago, but we, we basically gave um, males and females uh, information about um, the emotional and mental capacities of pigs, for example. And then after, so they read information showing how smart pigs were, how social they were really humanizing them. If you want to think of it that way. Right. Uh, and then we, we wanted to see how that would affect their, um, their attitudes about, uh, about animals and pigs and also about their future behavior. And basically women, um, when we asked them after they received this information and we asked women about their, if we asked them about their behavior, their expected behavior first, they, they said they would eat, they were intended to eat less pig products. And then after that, they tended to rate pigs as being uh, much more uh, having, you know, emotional and similarity to, to humans. Um, but for men, uh, we found something different. Men actually kind of revolted and they said they wanted to eat, they would eat more pig products. Mm. Right. <laughs> so, you, you, you know, this, this sort of like psychological reactance or this sort of need to um, I'll show you kind of thing. You're not going to yeah. push me around. You're not going to convince me. Um, so 
it's tough if you're trying to, people have asked me like, well, what kind of message should you give an audience? Literally like an audience, if you're giving a talk or something, or you're producing a, a pamphlet or something, what should it contain? And the problem is what might work for one set of eyes might not only not work for a different set of eyes, but might actually backfire for a different mm. set of eyes. I think that's a really good, good takeaway um, that, that I think the movement has sort of started to recognize that it, it, mm -hmm. it, the, these arguments are not going to be sort of general arguments. And we'll just go to another, um, a quick break. And I want to come back on that, that idea. Um, so we're going to, we've got um, California stars by Wilco. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Thanks for listening to Freedom of Species. Um, we're chatting with Hank Rothgerber from the Bellarmine University in Kentucky. And Hank is a social psychologist who studies um, things around meat paradox and the psychology of vegetarianism. And we've been discussing Frank's framework for meat-related cognitive dissonance. And we just finished um, sort of working or talking through the different uh, strategies that people use to um, try to bo uh, block meat-related cognitive dissonance or perceptual strategies that they use to manage and reduce um, meat-related cognitive dissonance. And, you know, there's so much in this framework that I think we could talk for about it in, in detail for hours, um, but I want to get on to some other stuff. So I'm just going to sort of try and summarise a little bit of the framework. And if I get anything wrong, just let me know, Hank. Um, oh, sure. But first things, so um, people are triggered. So things trigger um, meat-related cognitive dissonance in people. And this causes sort of an un a discomfort, um, psychological discomfort that they are trying to get rid of. Um, and and so one, one strategy to start with is that they just block uh, the cognitive dissonance. They just um, try to avoid it. They try to not even come into contact with that um, that discomfort. If they're successful with that, then it's prevented and they maintain their problematic behavior, eating meat. But if they're not successful at blocking, they come to, um, and the meat-related cognitive dissonance is actually experienced, then they, um, there's strategies, there's perceptual strategies that they use to reduce mechanisms. And one thing that we haven't gone into, but 
Hank sort of mentioned is that the strategies that people are using to reduce mechanisms of dissonance uh, uh, vary depending on the characteristics of the individual and um, possibly the characteristics of the triggers that have that they've been exposed to. So they use these strategies and if they're successful in using these strategies to reduce the this discomfort, this um, psychological discomfort, this dissonance, then um, then their their maintenance of, of their meat consumption can actually be strengthened or justified and and they're more aware of this cognitive distance so they'll jump on it more quickly and the final part it's all it's all the way down in this rabbit warren of of psychological pathways is to reduce um cognitive dissonance there could be behavioral change and and then that's the one that we're sort of interested in but to get there it's like a minefield that they've got to go through psychologically, which is, which is one, I think people don't um, really, uh, maybe people outside of psychology or social sciences um, don't really recognize the cognitive load of making so many decisions and really um, sort of important decisions about these sorts of things and, and how it's, it's hard, like people don't want to use all that energy on these decisions so it's easier to do to go with um avoidance or or uh reducing through perceptual strategies rather than behavioral change which is really difficult and and actually accepting that your behavior is problematic and recognizing that and and dealing with that is really cognitively sort of stressful or, or heavy i suppose um, sure. Yeah. And, and, and part of it is, uh, you know, meat eating is such an ingrained norm and people, um, they view it as normal and they, they anticipate, there's evidence that uh, people anticipate giving up meat as, as basically uh, be, they would become stigmatized. Mm. Right. Um, one reason why people don't uh, want to give up meat is they don't want to join voluntarily join a stigmatized group. Yep. And so it's, it's kind of, the, you know, if you think about uh, do-gooder derogation, that tactic, that's a tactic that meteors will, you know, when triggered will set in to kind of deflect attention away from themselves. They will criticize uh, vegetarians and vegans. And that also has the effect of, um, you know, not only of making them for the moment feel better because they don't really have to focus on why they feel anxious in their own moral inconsistency, but it also has the effect of, of kind of keeping more potential vegetarians or vegans uh, away. Right. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, so I think that some of these strategies can even work to, you know, to work against behavioral change just in that sense. Also, yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, a study that came out in, in England, in London, where they found that like something like 37 per, it might've been more, a certain percent of, of, of vegetarians or vegans admitted that they ate meat when they got drunk. And this was a big to do. I don't know if, if that came across your ways in Australia or not. Yep, did. And, and I remember being interviewed about that and, and what struck the whole thing just struck me as ridiculous, but I, you know, I, I, I turned it around and I said, what's most interesting to me about this is that you're interested in this, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> like this is to me, this is clearly a case of, of trying to be aha, we gotcha. You know, yep. you're all, we all knew you were fake the whole time. You're all just posers. You're just imposters that you really love meat so much that when you get drunk, you know, you just let your guard out and you act the way you naturally, the way people are supposed to act. Yeah. Right. So it's, to me, this was just this whole splash about this study was really just about do good or derogation. 
Yeah. Right. But it does keep people uh, from changing their diet because they know that if they do, they know it's going to be uncomfortable. They know it's going to be socially difficult. Um, and so, yeah, behavioral change is the goal. But uh, as you said, for, ver- for a variety of reasons, um, it's, you know, it's not obtained by the majority. And I, I think just to, just to, I want to underscore something in your summary and then I'll be quiet for yeah. a little bit and let you ask some questions. But um, I think one of the things that, that the framework to me helps explain is this, um, this pattern. I've just to try to step back. Um, I think I mentioned this a little bit, alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the, the pressures on eating meat are becoming, you know, more and more intense about the harm that it causes. That's become so much more well known yet fundamentally overall behavior hasn't really changed. Mm. Um, I mean, there's some evidence, it's a little, it's more complicated than that. I realize. there's, for instance, evidence that like meat substitute products are on the rise and so on. And so people are, they are getting turned on to those products. Um, but if you just look also at per capita meat consumption in a lot of places, it hasn't changed or it's, it's gone up. So it's, we have these two streams, right? One is, uh, meat eating is becoming, uh, socially, um, you know, criticized, it's becoming under, it's under scrutiny. And then the other, we have this phenomena where it seems also to be on the rise, right? Simultaneously, you wouldn't think these things would happen and you'd somehow wonder how they could both coexist. But I think that it's not, I suspect anyway, that, it, that it's not accidental. Mm. And one of the things that, that my framework basically suggests, as you pointed out, is that once a person has experienced cognitive dissonance, and then they've had to perceptually basically distort reality to enable them to keep eating meat, to make themselves feel okay about it. Uh, once they engage in those perceptual strategies, they get more committed to those strategies. So for instance, if they, if the way they feel good is by saying animals don't feel anything or animals are beneath us, what that does then is it encourages them to consume more. Mm. Right? And that's the, that's the ultimate effect. So, um, you might have some people maybe reducing their meat consumption, maybe some people engage in behavioral change, but unfortunately for a lot of others, these pressures to justify meat eating ironically cause people to eat more. Mm, that's, it's fascinating. It's almost like, well, if, if, I, if I did try to change, then I would be admitting that my behavior is wrong. So I'm going to go all in to prove that it's not wrong because I've made yeah. these justifications. It's absolutely yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, when you say it like that, that reminds me of, a, of um, a part of the paper toward the end where I talk about um, different factors, external factors that are related to this that have some dissonance implications. And one of them is, it reminds me of what you just said there, is like um, fast food restaurants. Um, I don't know, Burger King is one here. I don't know if you've heard of Hungry Burger Jacks. King. Hungry Jacks, yeah, yep. Okay, um, they, they've introduced, for example, the, uh, I think the Impossible Burger. So they have mm-hmm. a vegetarian burger that's based on the Impossible Burger product. And um, that, I mean, that seems like a great thing, right? Sure, more people will get exposed to it. More people will try that. Um, you'd hope that will lead to lower meat consumption. I mean, that has to be a great thing. When I heard that news and I saw it on my phone, I was like, yeah, this is great. You know, this is a good thing, right? Impossible, it's gone mainstream, right? And, and yeah, I mean, that seems right. But I do suspect that um, a lot of meat eaters uh, won't try it um, simply because if they do it, especially if they like it or if they keep going with it, they will have to then admit 
<laughs> right? Mm -hmm. The sins of the past, right? Yeah. Like to some degree, how is, how have I been able, how, what have I been doing so far? So it actually, I think even just its mere presence alone will probably cause some meat eaters to, um, you know, engage in the, in perceptual distortion, justify meat eating even more. So I think that the presence of that product, while it could do a lot of good, um, and this is, these are complicated things. It doesn't just have to have one, you know, straightforward effect. I think it will have some good effects, but I do also think that it may have some, I don't know if unintended consequences is the right phrase, but it will have some consequences that people may not be thinking of, which is to actually create pressures in some people to actually eat more meat. Yeah. It's, I, I, I think we, I, I'd love to talk so much more about this, this, <laughs> this topic. I think there's so much in there um, that needs to be explored so that we can sort of uh, figure out how we reach, reach somewhere that, that's, or have strategies that are more effective for um, reducing animal consumption. Um, but before we finish up, I just want to uh, sort of ask a couple of questions um, around the framework and and um, what might come out of it, and I was wondering: uh, do you do you, do you have any idea whether whether people whether if people are introduced to these dissonance strategies and sort of work through them themselves and go, oh shit, yeah, I I do that one, and I do that one, whether that um, makes a difference in terms of of change, or whether or it, would this would this just be another trigger? Like with the introduction of, of the framework be a trigger? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I'd love, I I'd love say... a meat related cognitive dissonance bingo where you just go through <laughs> and people are like, oh, yep, I do that, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I don't know, honestly. Um, I could see that it could be serve as a trigger. Um, I get that. So, I could get, and, and part of why I might say that is just anecdotal mm. personal experience. But when I talk about this in, in let's say in my social psych class, mm. I usually I do talk about this now when I talk about cognitive dissonance, that's a cognitive dissonance, is a very mainstream theory. So we're going to cover that naturally. And I feel no guilt at all about using this as an example. So I'll have a few examples in one of them and they, it resonates with them more than the other examples because meat eating is something that most of them do all the time. And yeah. right. And I'll be explaining, you know, I'll almost be doing it from an abstract perspective. And some of them don't even know that I don't eat meat. Sometimes I don't want the students to know that in case I ever collect yeah. data at the university. I don't want, I kind of want that to, there's this interesting tension there, but um, I'll usually do it sort of abstractly. And, and I might use words like we or meat eaters or whatever. I don't make it personal. So they're not feeling defensive, but I can just see, I can just feel in the air this the more the longer i go on about this the more they don't want to think about this you know sometimes i'll have often what will happen is um it's it's typically a female student because females are more as i've said they're more open to change in this area i think will approach me and i'll i mean i can almost tell them what they're going to say which is it's in, in no other words is that they're they really want to give up meat. Mm. And this is like, kind of like when I've talked about this, they use this as like, Oh yeah, I've been thinking about this. Now I have to do this. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you can do it. You know? Um, so it could be that though, just a kind of long winded digression there perhaps, but it could be that just showing someone these strategies might cause them to be thinking about, 
um, the greater guilt that they experience. It's, I mean, it, it's triggering it, right? Mm. You're giving them information. It's a definition of triggering it, right? You're, un, you're, you're, uh, it's you're almost sort of like metacognitive. It's, it's almost metacognitive, yeah. though. So I wonder yeah. if it, I, I'm interested in that. That's why I've sort of, uh, yeah, it's I, a great I, question. I don't know if anyone has, has researched it. I mean, in general, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if people have looked generally just at, at cognitive dissonance, just in a general sense, not mm -hmm. meat related, but if they've asked the question, if anyone's investigated that directly, like if you, if you explain cognitive dissonance to people, do they, um, does that affect their experience with dissonance? I don't know. I do know in general that unfortunately with a lot of the concepts in social psychology, I will say this, um, knowing about the concept does not inoculate you from uh, committing the, you know, yeah. falling into it. So for instance, uh, we are self-serving bias. We all think we're, most people think they're better than average on all sorts of dimensions. You tell students this, you teach it to them. And then you ask them, you know, uh, you know, later in the semester, you ask them uh, in the Milgram experiment, would you be, have been as obedient as the average college? No, no. The average college student would have been much more obedient than me. <sighs> right. So a lot of times information depressingly isn't enough yeah. so it could be the case here we're just knowing about this isn't enough or it may be that it depends on the person maybe some people are more um, open to information and more introspective and maybe those individuals they're maybe more flexible maybe they really would benefit from the sort of like you know illuminating all of this and they might oh yeah I, I can see that now maybe making explicit what's implicit would really do some good for them. It might, you know, maybe the, maybe that's the question is like, who are those people that it would help? And you know, we could, again, direct direct efforts toward those people. And maybe some people it's just not going to do anything. Right. Yeah. I'd that's love, probably I'd, the answer, but it's a, it's a good question though. Yeah. I'd love to, um, to keep talking about in depth, but I think, I think we're going to have to wrap up there. Um, and before, before I, um, I, we do, I just wanted to, on that same point, I wonder if, if there's a way to actually assess which, um, which strategies people are using in terms of cognitive dissonance so that we can have a more targeted approach to individuals um, in terms of behaviour change. And um, that, maybe that's a question or a discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, I'd, uh, I think that's, that's sort of something that I think advocates could really use from this this framework is a way to sort of evaluate individuals and see how they might interact with them yeah and, and just to not to talk too long but um yeah i think one of the problems of, of the typical experiment that we do is we may give people one outlet to reduce their meat-related cognitive dissonance and so of course, they'll embrace that outlet, they'll endorse it, because that's all they have. Mm. We don't really know kind of in a more natural setting, which one people prefer if you, if you give them multiple options, or you make it unstructured, it's a little harder to, to conceptualize how to study that way. But mm. it is, I agree, that it is important and that just because you can show that people reduce it in a certain way doesn't mean that's their preferred way. Yeah, I think that's the important point. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for, um, for joining us today, Hank, and sharing your research. I think it's going to be really valuable and useful for a lot of our listeners. Um, great, great. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Adam. Anytime you want to have me back, I know you want a variety of guests, but I'm always happy to, to talk your ear off.